jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. Arts and culture. You are listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on the jasoncharles.net podcast network. On today's episode, I'll be talking with Matt Severson, director of the Margaret Herrick Library, part of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. This is a non-circulating library housing the world's largest and most complete collections of films, scripts, photographs, illustrations, and more, celebrating the art form of motion pictures. It is used by scholars, researchers, historians, writers, and filmmakers to study and preserve the elements that make up this great industry of creativity. Margaret Herrick, originally from Spokane, Washington, came to California in 1931 and started at the Academy as a volunteer librarian that same year. After five years of working to develop the library and its holdings, she was formally named the Academy's librarian in 1936 and assumed an executive position on the Academy's Board of Governors 10 years later. When she retired in 1971, the library was renamed in her honor. Margaret Herrick died in 1976. Stay tuned at the end of the interview for an exclusive excerpt from Francois Truffaut's interview with Alfred Hitchcock for his 1962 book, Hitchcock Truffaut, from the collection of the Alfred Hitchcock papers, courtesy of the Margaret Herrick Library, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In this piece, they discuss the making of Rear Window. And now, here's my fascinating conversation with the wonderful Matt Severson, the current director of the Margaret Herrick Library. This is Laura Craven with Lost Angeles on the JasonCharles.net podcast network. Today, my special guest is Matt Severson, director of the Margaret Herrick Library, which is part of the Fairbanks Center for Motion Picture Study in Beverly Hills. So nice to see you today, Matt. It's great to see you, Laura. Thank you for having me. I wanted to to talk to you about so many things (laughs) because the library is so vast and it has such a, a wonderful history. But first off, Let's start out by talking about how the library is technically open to the public under non-pandemic circumstances, but is really a resource for scholars and writers. That is that is so true. And so normally, uh, pre-COVID days, we are open uh, four days a week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, on t- uh, generally f- Monday Thursday, Friday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Tuesdays 10 a.m. to 8 p.m., and then sometimes we are also open on Saturdays to members and for uh, people that have appointment, by appointment only, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, since we, like the world, when we shut down, we all had to kind of scramble. And uh, I have to say that I'm really grateful to the Academy because they very quickly mobilized us into getting people laptops that did not, you know, a lot of people had, you know, big 
hunking computers at their desks and suddenly had to get laptops. And um, we figured out pretty quickly that Zoom, like everyone else, was our new friend. And we were having lots of meetings and figured out ways to make our resources available online. We have a reference department. Uh, and they they are people, I mean, luckily, a lot of our assets are digitized. So if you're looking for photographs or reproductions of posters, production art, sketches, things of that nature, uh, even audio recordings, those are available. And we can provide those if you are seeking them out. And then we also occasionally... Uh, get approval from our COVID task force to kind of go into the library to do special projects. And we've, we are kind of constantly, as you can imagine, you know that we're in the process of building this amazing film museum uh, on Wilshire Boulevard. Right, at Wilshire and, and Fairfax. And so we have uh, a number of staff that are kind of in there on a regular basis, socially distanced, masked, and, you know, we're taking all the precautions so that those people have a safe healthy environment to work in. So like 90, you know, almost all of us are working from home with occasional people going in to do work. So we're we're really kind of going out of our way to support our members, to support the our the people that kind of use our our resources on a regular basis and um yeah, that's kind of what we're doing right yeah. now. So if somebody did want to make an appointment to come in to to look at some of the resources that you have, let's say they're researching a book, would that be allowed or or now in this climate, it's not? They could contact our reference department mm-hmm. and that the, the people working the reference lines, either you can call, you can, there's phone lines, but best is probably an email to, um, I feel like it's reference, reference at oscars.org. Mm-hmm. You could ask a question and those people would reach out to you and help you with your question. It's possible that we might have to maybe put it on hold until we're back. But, you know, I would say that almost almost all of our requests are being answered. So wow. yeah. that's great. Well, what an amazing resource you are oh. for the the city. Its oh. favorite industry is is movies and film and it's, you know, the the quest for information in that area I'm sure is never ending. I, I think you are absolutely right. And I have to say that, you know, one of the things I think when people think of the Academy, they think of the Oscars naturally. And obviously that is probably the thing that we are most closely aligned with, but what a lot of people don't know are the kind of more philanthropic aspects of the Academy. And the library was, you know, the library has been with the Academy since its inception, pretty much from about 1927, 1928, when the offices for the Academy were at the Roosevelt Hotel. I think there was a closet that they designated as the library where they had scientific journals, various technical manuals, other magazines that were kind of focused on film. And then that just kind of grew and grew. And uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary resource. Right. Well, definitely it is. And, and as you're saying, the whole reason to purchase this property and to build the gorgeous building that it's in now is primarily because the library had outgrown the space that it was in prior to. So so let's talk about the building a little yes. bit. It was uh, completed in 1928. That's right. And it began as the Waterworks Building for Beverly Hills because they wanted to retain their independence from Los Angeles. That's correct. And um, so as a water purification system, I can imagine it was uh, it was really necessary because as 
it's on La Cienega Boulevard. Um, it didn't take much for me to figure out that the word Cienega itself translates directly to swamp or bog. <laughs> so this water was desperately in need of purification. And Douglas Fairbanks was one of the people that led the charge. That's correct. And so he was also the Academy's first president. And so he and Mary Pickford and a number of other uh, early members of the Academy were kind of out trying to campaign to raise funds for this water treatment plant. And, um, you know, one of the nice kind of instances of uh, coincidence is that when our executive director, Bruce Davis, was looking for a place to how rehouse this library that had, you know, at that point, our collection had expanded. We Our new executive offices were on Wilshire Boulevard, 8949 Wilshire Boulevard. They're still there. Of the seven floors, two of them were made up of the library. And a lot of the collections were stored at off-site storage facilities. And there are stories that I hear, so it was before that I came into the library, uh, where people were having book trucks going down Wilshire Boulevard People were carrying the Alfred Hitchcock papers down Wilshire Boulevard to make an appointment at the Wilshire building. Well, I love the image of that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the people were kind of going, you know, maybe that's not the best idea for that. And uh, hit these priceless gems. Exactly. I mean, artifacts. I don't know how – I imagine that if it was the Alfred Hitchcock collection, it was probably there. But I'm sure that it was like books and other materials that were being brought over. But our executive director was – driving down uh, La Cienega Boulevard one day, looked at the water treatment plant and went, hmm. And, and the story goes, according to Bruce, is that he called Linda and said, what do you think about Spanish Romanesque as a as a site for the new library? And, you know, everyone kind of thought about it. And I think because the walls were so thick to hold all that water, mm-hmm. I mean, these are a perfect place to have storage vaults and other things that would protect papers and other manuscripts. And at the time when the library was first settled in the water, the former water treatment plant, that we also had our film archive, so it could also store mm-hmm. film reels as well. Wow! So it could be a very controlled climate, correct? And and really protect them. That's awesome. Correct. And um, do you know anything about how it came about that? even though it was going to be a water treatment plant, the the vision for the building was really church-like and the grounds around it to be very park-like. And was that to kind of camouflage what what it really was doing there in the middle if, of this new city? From what I understand, and this might be something you might we might want to just kind of research, but I believe there was a thing called City Beautiful, or there was mm-hmm. there was some kind of movement on to make the city more beautiful. And I think that that was why they hired this architect and why it doesn't and, just look at it like an industrial building, basically. Right. And that is civil engineer Arthur Taylor. Yes. We should give him credit where credit's absolutely. due because it is absolutely gorgeous. I, I would encourage everyone, I'll give out the, the website at the end, but the rose window that is part of the the spire there is just stunning. The rose window is right where that's our conference room. Uh, we And it is just, it's splendid, really. Yes. It's really just... Just a, a jewel. And also, while we're uh, crediting Arthur Taylor, we should also give a shout out to Fran Offenhauser mm-hmm. and her company, which did the kind of rehab on the building. And, you know, she 
kept all the kind of the original lines. I mean, I wish that we were in the building right now because it is a fabulous building. I have to, to agree with tour. you. I wish we were there too. Maybe we do a part two of this right. interview at some point and I'm we could do it that. in person. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Wow. Well, I should say, since you mentioned Fran, that um, this is really a stellar example of municipal adaptive reuse. Um, unfortunately, the building suffered in the 1971 Silmar earthquake. And after that, it was kind of, I don't want to use the word abandoned or neglected, but it really wasn't being looked after the way way that it deserved. And so to begin that rehab process in the late 80s and bring it up to the standards that it is now and have it still be such a jewel in the center of Beverly Hills, I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. Agreed completely. Definitely. I should mention here also, it was the recipient of an LA Conservancy Preservation Award. And that's right. We have was the that award. in 1991? That's right. When it opened? Okay. I believe it was Jan- January 91, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken, like the tw- uh, 27th or something like that. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, and also, from what I understand, it, there's a 55 year lease on this building. So it's looking like that's going through 2043. Are there plans for it to be? We, I, funny enough, we I just – I've kind of sent some letters to the city just to kind of talk about like we should probably talk about this that's and see. good advanced planning. Yes. I mean, hey, we're working from home. so That's uh, right. <laughs> Might as well dot all the I's and exactly. cross all those T's. Exactly. I mean, we really have a very good relationship with the with the city, and we often have people from the city kind of doing tours of the library. And what I've, you know, in the two years, two plus years that I've been the director of the library, we really have made an effort to communicate with them and let them know that we want to work with them to to not think of us as just this kind of standalone, standoffish, beautiful building, but that we want the people that live there and and work in Beverly Hills to know that we're a resource and that we are part of the community as well. And so it's really important to us to get new faces in there. I've always seen the library as kind of like a hub. And so rather than this, you know, a lot of people think of like, if you think of Citizen Kane, there's that scene where uh, someone goes to a library and it's this very kind of like austere place and austere librarian comes out with this one book on this one big table. (laughs) And I just think what I hope in my tenure is that people can see this as a warm environment that if you're a film lover, we're the place to come to. We're the place. I mean, yes, we can all Google. The world is Googling. But there is something about primary research materials mm-hmm. and to actually see the handwritten letters of Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and original costume designs by Edith Head, oh. original artworks by and sketches and designs by Saul Bass, uh, original Who's memos like, from Alfred Hitchcock. All exactly. of these things reside there, and as well as more contemporary filmmakers as well. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, since you mentioned Saul Bass, he is he's best known for designing title sequences. So I can't imagine his hand-drawn illustrations in advance of, you know, the actual artwork that's going to be placed up on the film screen. I mean, that's just got to be magical. It's magical. And, uh, you know, one of the things also, so if, so what I'm trying to do 
is we would also like to start a step. We started establishing the year before kind of COVID hit a new um, uh, special event series that was happening at the library called Words on Film. And the idea is to get scholars and researchers that use our use our library, use our resources to be able to kind of come in, speak to the public, maybe have book signings of their work. We, you know, we also had uh, a night celebrating film critics. So we had Manola Dargis, Peter DeBruge from Variety, Justin Chang from the LA Times get together to have a film sympo- a symposium on film criticism and a dialogue with, you know, with people that would be interested in that subject. And we did one on Saul Bass as well, oh, curated great. by Jenny Bass, his daughter. Mm-hmm. And um, and what we, what's also lovely is not only are we speaking about this, but then we have these rare objects that are often out of sight for the general public when they're using our library, but they can actually come and see and sometimes maybe even hold something that was in the archive. Wow. And, um, and I think just being able to see these things in person changes our relationship to them. They cease being just information, but they're more this tangible, physical representation of the history that we all know and love. Wow. Well, I do hope that when all is said and done with this pandemic, that you begin that series again. It would just be fascinating. Yes. We have a whole lineup Good. on hold right now. We we thought about doing a virtual one, and then we thought, you know, th- the special quality is actually being in the library, being with the material, and there's plenty of Zoom programs. And frankly, the Academy has a number of great programs already online. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll hold off and then when we're back and it's safe we can we can do that. All right. So. Well that's great. I look forward to that for sure. Um now speaking of the artifacts, uh many, many great filmmakers of you know all aspects of the genre have donated their archives or perhaps after they passed away, their family members have made a gift of their special notebooks and letters and um, artwork to the library. So I can imagine that that's vast. I mean, you must have so much. And so do you have different librarians that might have um, specialties in, like, let's say, costume design, and they go through all of, like, Edith Head's drawings and determine kind of what gets placed where and, and what might be on exhibit in this new museum that we'll get a chance to talk about. Yes, that is a that is a great question, Laura. Um, so a way to think about our library and the way that we kind of divide the objects up is that we have different departments. So um, before I was the director, I used to run the photograph department. Mm-hmm. And, there, and uh, we have a graphic arts department that that would be costume design drawings, posters, uh, production design illustrations, animation cells, so that would be graphic arts. Special collections would be, if you think of like memos and letters and correspondence and things of that nature, would all be there. Uh, we also have a core collection uh, reference, so that would be all of our clip. So we have like 300, I think it's over 300,000 production clipping files. So that encompasses even so we have librarians that their side job just like like a portion of what they do is someone will be in charge of the New York Times the LA Times Time magazine and then they go through those periodicals or newspapers clipping anything that would be of key interest on the study of a film a filmmaker a subject like 
3D technology, color, technicolor, etc. All of that would be clipped. And there's not a lot of libraries still doing that level of clipping. Right. Um, And we also have an audio uh, collection as well. So that would be oral histories. That would that would include, say, if any of your um, listeners are familiar with the Truffaut-Hitchcock book, all of those original uh, tapes between Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock, those original audio recordings are at our library. Uh, so when the there was a film that was done about that book recently, mm-hmm. those original audio recordings were used from the library. And I would dare say that any, you know, most books on the subject of film, which is vast, you often will see a credit to the Margaret Herrick Library because there's just such a, a uh, an enormous amount of material there for right. researchers. Well, it's my understanding also that the Herrick Library, I mean, the attempt is made to have every English language book that's been written on the the artistry of filmmaking is within your walls. That is absolutely correct. We 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 do our best. I mean, we are we have like a core group that actually looks at new books coming out. We also look we are also kind of always keen to see what we've missed, if there are holes in our collection. And it it's not just limited to English language. We also have European publications and right. books. We also have film we, is global. That is correct. And you know, we also are making an effort so that um People that uh, might need something in Braille or anything for the hearing impaired, that they also we, – we really are trying to look at this as a library for everyone. Right, right. Fabulous. <laughs> and also you do keep files on not only filmmakers but films as if, you know, it's a biography of the film, which is incredible. I think that number is somewhere up around 82,000 files. That sounds about right. I mean, I I feel like it might even be more than that. But yes, you're you are correct. So if you think of like any film that was released in this country, and plenty that weren't Mm -hmm. uh, that we have files on films that were never completed. So if you wanted to do if you were doing any kind of book, I mean, really on any film, you could have like a, a very good representation on all the newspaper clippings and that that would give you a documentation of the history of the making of that film basically wow that's that is so great and it just (laughs) it shows you know films are they're a living thing you know they're everlasting especially you know due to the great works that all of you are doing there at the library but I mean, that's that's our hope. I mean, our our real hope is that for our members, I mean, it's a member driven organization, and we really want to know that our to our members that we are here to help preserve your legacies, and 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 I would say that there's been a real push over the last twenty years, I would say, to really expand that notion because if you can imagine, this was an industry organization originally. Uh, mm-hmm. kind of conceived by Louis B. Mayer to kind of, uh, for a number of different reasons, to kind of coalesce around uh, solving problems in the industry. but And it became a documentation of the Hollywood industry, but we've really tried to see ourselves now as a global organization. So our collections at the library are also global in effect. Mm-hmm. We have uh, you know extraordinary collections. If you're even just looking at the film posters, we have extensive film poster collections on Cuban cinema, Russian cinema, 
Chilean cinema, Czechoslovakian cinema, and and not even just that cinema, but the posters that were made by Czech artists representing films from around the world. Right, because it's an art form all its own. That's correct. A film that is released here in America has a completely different look on a poster in another country, and it's fascinating to see how it's reinterpreted that way. That is way. so true. That yeah. is so true. That's great. Yeah. I did want to touch on uh, part of the museum's vast contents are the production code. And I've seen images of this where there are bound, like leather-bound books that just line whole bookshelves, like wall after wall of them. And if you could speak a little uh, about that, if it's still going on, apparently the production code will review a script. And in the earliest days, I think they were looking for a salacious or, um, you know, imagery that might be untoward on film and how that is has evolved to today. The, uh, you know, I, I probably know less about how that is working today, but our production code files are, I would say, might be our most access collection, single collection at the library. What is fascinating about this collection, uh, which kind of, I would say that the origins are in the early 1930s, and there was this idea that the film, if you look at the films of the late 20s to the early 30s, there's often a focus on, you know, premarital sex and, you know, abortions are referred to and drug use and other things that were realities of daily life. And yet the society at large felt that films were being a little too salacious and they wanted to kind of button up the industry and there was a huge kind of moral outcry and they wanted things to be different. They wanted family entertainment. So the Hays Code was indoctrinated to kind of make these restrictions on filmmakers and you can take a film like Gone with the Wind and see the different layers of letters back and forth with the Hayes office wow. to, that say, you know, this is a little too suggestive. We'd prefer you use this word as opposed to this word if someone is pregnant or what have you. Mm -hmm. And it is just a fascinating document of that process. And the filmmakers, for the most part, they would acquiesce to this? And I think so. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about that period in Hollywood, I mean, for any of us that grew up loving screwball comedies, say with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, there is a lot of allusions to sex, but it yet it is not in a kind of a vulgar way. It's in this kind of very kind of knowing way. And there's subtle ways that people like Preston Sturgis and Ernst Lubitsch were able to kind of get around the code and in some ways making it far more interesting than if they were more direct, I think. Oh, I think for those of us that love classic Hollywood from that era, I mean, you often see that's the brilliance of the writers from that era. Right, is that they have these thoughts to get across, but they're trying to work within certain limitations. That's an excellent perspective on that. Yeah. I'm going to watch films from that era <laughs> with a different, a different eye now. Um, well, I wanted to move on to the museum that's being built now. This is in the Old May Company department store. It's at the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax and adjacent to LACMA, which is undergoing you know, some massive renovations and new buildings under construction there as well. So when the Academy Museum, is that the right way to? The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures okay. is how we refer to it. So, so when this opens, they will have kind of circulating or 
revolving exhibits or yes rotating ex- rotating ex- exhibits. exhibits thank you I, definitely a lot of rotating exhibits and um i don't believe i mean i think one of the things that has been made public is there's going to be an international one of the first big exhibits is going to be a exhibition dedicated to Hayao Miyazaki, the great Japanese animator right. and filmmaker. And uh, so this will be the first time that Miyazaki's work will be seen outside of Japan. And uh, in in these ways, they have original materials that Angelinos can kind of come and take a look at and uh, see the history of this great artist. There, what I really love about the approach that the that Bill Kramer and his team are doing is that they're really looking at the history of film not from a linear perspective, but from like this kind of holistic view that there is no one right way to look at film history from 1894, 1895 till now. And they're looking at it in terms of both the achievements of film and also maybe the, maybe less, the less uh, pretty side of the industry, you know, to look at the way that race uh, was uh, portrayed on film, stories, histories that were left out of of uh, filmmaking in the Hollywood studios from that era, and trying to give a context to mm. it, and um, and that goes with the Acad- the history of the Academy Awards as well. Our library, the way that the, a good way to look at it, because of what I often get a question is, so now that you have this museum, does that mean that the library is now going to be inside the museum? And the answer is no. Uh, but the way to think of us and our support of the museum is that we are kind of the well, the deep well, that the museum kind of takes materials out. We we loan it out essentially to the museum for display for a certain amount of time. We also have at the library, we have a conservation department, a really extraordinary uh, group of people that look at the paper, that know the science behind how long an object can be out with a certain amount of sunlight and not turn yellow or what have you. Right. And um, so so Don Jeros, who runs that department, works with the museum to determine how long these items from the library and elsewhere can be on display, basically. Right. And um, so we are, you know, working on very, there's, I'm not exactly sure which ones I get. I'm allowed to tell you that they're working on right now. Okay, but, well, I certainly don't want to, so, uh, yeah, to so have you reveal anything. Let me just say shouldn't. that there are a number of really extraordinary filmmakers. There's a number of really extraordinary topics that are kind of like in the mix. Uh, I personally have worked on the Academy Awards History Gallery, and that is a very exciting, uh, I think, the way that they're even, I mean, the Academy Awards itself is a really complicated, interesting, fascinating history and to have visual, oral, uh, media representation of that history, I think will be exciting for film fans uh, around the world and for for people visiting. Of course, everyone wants to hold an Oscar. And that is also something that you will be able to do at that museum. Exciting. And done at like on an elevated level. I mean, I I think it's really important for the Academy for this not to seem like just another museum, like the Academy really wants to make this the museum on film history uh, and be a kind of a locus for 
And the way that I think about the library is like a hub for movie discussion, for movie love and passion, and to inspire young people who may be, you know, in the world of TikTok and YouTube and streaming, the 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 glory of going to a big movie palace to see Star Wars or Gone with the Wind or whatever that movie is that really set that fire for you. I, I really believe that this museum will inspire people of, of all ages. Right, when absolutely. They visit. And I agree. It's not going to be like any other museum in the world. Yes. Can't be. But I do love how you mention um, there is a whole generation that are homegrown filmmakers, as it were, whether it, you know, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. These, you know, kids are filming themselves, their friends, their coming up with subject matter, they're editing these. And I think that, you know, the the generations that are going to come through this will look to the resources that you're maintaining for the world as, you know, a great center of learning for them. The museum, I can imagine it's going to be a magnet for anyone that has ever created and filmed anything. I, you know, I really, I agree with you. I really think that that is, and I think that is the goal of everyone that has put their heart and soul into this, uh, this museum. Um, it reminds me of a speech that I believe it's Francis Ford Coppola gave in the early nineties at the Academy Awards. And he said really prophetically that one day the new filmmaker will be my five-year-old daughter who will have a camera and be able to put her little film somewhere. And that is the magic of YouTube and TikTok. I mean, like it or not, these are films. And, you know, one day those organizations will need to figure out how do we store all of this Right. data one day. They're I mean, going to need their own mat they are, to, yes. <laughs> to corral it all together and yes. make sure it's preserved yes. for, for generations to come. Oh, yes. Amazing. Um, is there any kind of timeline in place for when that museum will be open? The museum is going to be open this September. It is scheduled for this September. Uh, originally, there was uh, they were really focused on opening it in April of this year. But of course, due to COVID and that, they moved it back just clearly out of health and safety concerns for everyone, basically. Right, right. Well, that's something really to look forward to. Yes. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that and just to the preservation of that building itself as well, just like the Waterworks building. Agreed. I mean, we can all be grateful that it, it didn't fall to, to bulldozers. Yes. For sure. Um, I wanted to move the conversation over to you yourself, Matt. <laughs> I... I want everyone to know that oh, in the dictionary, if you look up the word cinephile, <laughs> the definition that you'll get is a person who's fond of motion pictures. And actually, there should be a photograph of you there because you are such a cinephile. I, I think at last count on your letterboxed site, we are closing in on 7,700 films <laughs> you've watched. It's just an incredible feat. I'm in awe. Oh. And... <laughs> It's a sickness, really. Oh, oh no. it's a... <laughs> So I'd like to talk a little bit about how, um, how this degree of time that you can put into that can inform what you're doing every day and that 
you know, you do have lists of of favorite films in different genres and different eras. So, you know, I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by that. And I would love to hear how this uh, this love of film began for I'm you. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm a little embarrassed. But, um, you know, I, I have been a movie lover since I was very, very young. And my parents would wake me up at 5 a.m. to watch the original Little Shop of Horrors or 42nd Street. Uh, and uh, when I was... A, kid, I would just, my parents didn't know this, but I would sometimes go into our garage where my dad had this very tiny TV in the garage so he could watch stuff while he was working on the car and that, and I would smuggle it into my bedroom, <laughs> try to stay awake under the covers till like 3 a.m. when I could watch, you know, various horror films that were on late, late, late. Um, and that's kind of continued. I mean, I really do have a deep passion for film and film history. I also feel like I should, I, about maybe 10 years ago, I was thinking about my, I, I mean, I don't think I was really over the top, even as a student. I mean, I saw, I saw a number of films a week and I probably had a fairly normal diet of cinema. And but I also realized at a certain point that, like, I was watching reality TV shows. I was a pretty normal consumer of, like, media at the end of the day when I got home from work. And one day I thought to myself, you know, I could up my game. And I <laughs> I started, I, I said, I'm just going to cut out all of this other stuff because what is that going to really do for me? Like, I, I thought, I only have so long on this planet my real chosen field is film and cinema, and there's plenty of films that I want to see. So I started making, I'm a big list maker, as my husband can tell you, and I started making lists, uh, and I started doing this thing where I would try to see every film by a great filmmaker, from Hitchcock to Ingmar Bergman to Antonioni, whomever. I just wanted to see all of these films. And of course, as you may know, sometimes once is not enough to really kind of take in a film. Right. Uh, and true. so I just started seeing more and more films. And as you can imagine, lockdown has only increased this. I thought to myself a couple of years ago, I'm like, you know, I could probably ease off of this a little bit. No, the shutdown has only increased this. I mean, one of the side benefits is that, you know, I can get up. I generally get up at 5 a.m. I often will go to a spin class in the morning, but I'll start a film you know, for about an hour or so in the morning, maybe finish it when I get back from class, and then at the very least watch another one later at night so that my afternoon is kind of free and I can kind of focus on my work. Occasionally, I can fit in more, and it does become a game of Tetris at some level. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out where you could put those hours and yes. minutes together and actually complete the film. That's exactly it. And and I also feel like, honestly, it feels for me, it 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 feels like an education. I really feel like what I do, the organization that I belong to, the filmmakers that I meet and that I'm working with, I often think to myself, people can tell when you fake it. And, you know, we all fake it on, there's, there's a level to that for everyone. But I, there's this deep passion in me that I want to know of which I speak. And I just love engaging with them intellectually, creatively. Uh, and just 
and just in, in terms of sheer cinematic pleasure, it's really wonderful. And um, anyway, I'm talking way too much. But oh, no, yes. I love it. And you are so right that that I think um, digesting films, you know, just consuming them that way, it is an education. It's a way to see the rest of the world. I mean, one thing that I was completely blown away by is the number of foreign films on your list because – you know, for anyone throughout the world, just being exposed to that other environment, to to what that director wants to show us, to the words that were written that are coming out as dialogue, I mean, it can only inform our our ability to see the world as kind of a, a smaller place. You know, it is huge and vast, but when you can watch a film from a country that is many thousands of miles away and feel what the filmmaker is trying to put across, that makes it that much smaller. It's oh, an incredible it's beautifully, art form. It's beautifully expressed. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I would also say that when I was a young person and I kind of came to film loving horror movies were my thing as a child. And then I kind of expanded and really got into European cinema at a very, very young age. And so people like Fellini and Bergman and that didn't seem like such stretches to me because they often had elements that are at the very least maybe atmospheric, but also had elements of nightmares and that woven into their narratives. So I it, I sometimes joke that I came to European cinema and international cinema before I came to Hollywood cinema in mm. a lot of ways. Interesting. And it was it was kind of the the Hollywood era that really I had to kind of work on in a more in my head in a more project driven way as I got older. Also because the Hollywood system is just so vast yes. and they, and its history is so complicated. Um, but, uh, yes, I love it. I'm slightly embarrassed. I will tell you though, <laughs> Do not be. that if in looking at my, um, at my stats from last year, like I had like an, almost an embarrassingly large, I had eight, I think I logged 842 films last year. Wow. So that was, so somewhere in that realm, but, um, you know, I think that's probably more than what is the normal well, you know, normal is a very <laughs> relative word. So, yes. you know, let's do away with that. Yes. But um, would it be impossible for you to to try to address maybe a couple or three films that were absolutely life-changing for you? Absolutely. Um, life-changing to me. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll start with one. In the early 90s, um, the, funny enough, it's, it's, academy back, it has, it's an academy back project, but I didn't know it at the time. Uh, the great Indian filmmaker, Sajat Rai, I had read about his films for a number of years, and I had always wanted to see the Apu trilogy, Patra Panchali, and some of his other great films. And uh, Merchant Ivory, the, mm -hmm. the gentleman that made A Room with a View, Morris, Howard's End, re-released uh, seven or eight of Rye's films in the West, it, it, here in America, uh, in like 91, 92. And the first time I saw Pathar Panchali, I just felt like it was, I felt like I was, in a way, going back to that Coppola quote, it was almost like I was seeing film in a completely different way. And it really trans transformed me. And uh, it's a movie that always makes me cry when I see it because I just think there is something so beautiful and so pure in that filmmaking. And as that is Rai's first film, uh, I just, you know, 
I've never been to Calcutta, but as you were saying so eloquently, I felt like I understood what that family was going through in that movie. And and it's not a you know what I like what I like to say because I think people are put off sometimes by subtitles, is that I on it like in, to me that is not I don't. I don't almost recognize the subtitles at this right. point. It's not a barrier. It's not a barrier. And and really, sometimes the greatest filmmakers, it's not the words. It's really the images and the way that filmmaker is using moving images to tell their story. And, um, you know, so Pather Panchali, a big impact on me as an older adult, as a younger person, I'll never forget, you know, I saw... In Los Angeles, in the like late 70s, there was a PBS or UHF channel where there was a professor of film that would show like a great, you know, like one of the classics at that time. And I saw The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the German expressionist horror film from 1920. And the, pro- the professor talked about the film meaning, symbolism, what is German expressionism, all of that. And I was probably 10 when I saw that. And and for me, that and my uh, I badgered my dad into taking me to see David Lynch's Eraserhead when I was far too young. That Most parents would not be doing this. But my dad had no choice because I just said, I have to see this movie. So he took me to see Eraserhead at a midnight screening in Orange, in Orange County, and uh, at midnight, and we were in line, and I all these college students were with us, and I remember them talking about the film in this elevated way. And I would say that professor with Caligari and the college students that I suddenly felt very grown up as this like 13-year-old kid, 12, 13-year-old kid, I suddenly was seeing that film was not just film. You know, I loved Greece. I loved young Frankenstein just as much as anyone else. But suddenly I saw that this art form was something else. You know, when you see Eraserhead or a film by David Lynch, it's not operating on the same level. It's not the same. It's using the same language, but maybe putting them in a different way. And um, it was really transformative to me. And then when I was uh, in college, I did a semester in Europe and uh, studied film history. And it was the professors that I was with in Europe that I was suddenly able to kind of like merge this film history with this art history that I was learning. And it all just kind of elevated everything, basically. Uh, and it brought you to where you are today. That, I'm so grateful because it's a blend of education. Happens. I mean, really, I, I feel like the luckiest guy. I often say I feel like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. And kudos to your dad for actively encouraging <laughs> that kind of, of film you know, the desire to see something so different. I I can tell you that Eraserhead is on a number of curriculum, of you know, for film students, you know, across the country. So you were really in the right element there. Uh, I, you know, I credit both my, both my mom and dad were really supportive of me all throughout my childhood. I never doubted, you know, no one ever said, you should really try to be a banker first and then do this. It was always very... Um, you know, I don't think anyone necessarily wanted to see Racerhead but me. But, uh, but you know, they knew that I was that guy. Uh, so, yeah. So I feel v- I'm very, very fortunate right. to, to all of this. Uh, well, I'm grateful to you for sharing that, oh. that part of your life. And I definitely <laughs> am going to use your, your letterboxed list to inform my own film education. Oh. Because, it, like, looking at 
all the films that are listed there, and I I think I've seen a lot, but but that really does put me to shame. So I'm going to no. use that for my own. There's there's no competition involved. But I would let <laughs> if you're on Letterbox, I will follow you, okay. and there would be a great way for us to stay connected. Yes, absolutely, it will goals <laughs> yes. for sure. Well, I think we've come to the end of the conversation, but I just want to thank you so much, Matt, for spending oh. the time with me today. This has been so enlightening. I love learning about the Margaret Herrick Library. I would encourage anyone listening to visit it in person when the world has opened up. It's at 333 South La Cienega Boulevard in Beverly Hills. You can always go online to oscars.org library and see everything that is digitally maintained, lovingly preserved for the benefit of everyone who loves films. I'm I'm honored, and you said that so beautifully. And uh, I'm just uh, I'm happy to promote our library, and I really hope that the next time I see you, Laura, I can take you around myself at the library and give you a guided behind the scenes tour. Absolutely, that sounds like a plan for sure. I I can't wait to Great. go and visit the library in person. Great. Well, this has been a great conversation, learning about the Margaret Herrick Library in Beverly Hills. And for Los Angeles, this is Laura Craven on the JasonCharles.net Podcast Network. My sincere thanks to Matt Severson for that engaging and informative conversation. Stay tuned for an exclusive excerpt from the audio interview Francois Truffaut conducted with Alfred Hitchcock for his 1962 book, Hitchcock Truffaut. From the collection of the Alfred Hitchcock papers generously provided to us by Matt and the Margaret Herrick Library, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. What tempted you at the at the outset was perhaps this challenge? Oh, sure, yeah. The technique, the technical aspect. It well, you had you had uh, you had the possibility now for doing a purely cinematic film. Faire un film In other words, uh, you had the immobile man seeing one piece of film. He looks. Un morceau de film the second regarde. piece of film Le is what he sees, film, c'est ce qu'il voit. and it's his reaction. Et ses réactions. This was the cinematic motif all C'était the way through the film. Uh, proving that the three pieces of film uh, represent what we know as the purest expression of cinematic idea. Sure, he was a peeping Tom, but um, aren't we all? That's true. And he's even in the position of the spectator of a film who's looking at a who's looking at a motion at a movie. I'll bet you nine people out of ten, if they see something across, like a woman undressing and going to bed, or even sometimes a man pottering around his room doing nothing, nine people out of ten will stay and look. They won't turn away and say, it's none of my business, and pull down their own curtain. They won't do it. You've been listening to Lost Angeles with Laura Craven on jasoncharles.net.
jasoncharles.net. Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.